0: Lesson 7 for August 5 through to 11, The Road to Faith, Sabbath afternoon, August 5. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week. We're going to listen to it, we're going to read it, we're going to digest it, but we need your Holy Spirit to guide us because this lesson is so important as it talks about faith, the road to faith, and each of us is on that journey. We pray, Lord, that whatever our needs are this week, that you will be with us each one, wherever we are in this world, listening to this podcast. Bless us each one, we pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22. Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's read that again, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22. Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Homing pigeons long have been known for their ability to fly hundreds of miles a day and arrive at their destination with amazing accuracy. Yet, even the best homing pigeons at times have become disoriented, never returning to their starting point. The worst incident happened in England, when tens of thousands of birds never came back to their lofts. As most of us have experienced in one way or another, being disoriented or lost is not enjoyable. It fills us with fear and anxiety. It can even lead to moments of panic. The same is true in the spiritual realm. Even after we accept Christ, we can get lost or disoriented, even to the point of never returning to the Lord. The good news, however, is that God has not left us to ourselves. He has mapped out the road to faith, as revealed in the Gospel, and that path includes the law. Many people try to separate the law from the Gospel, some even see them as contradictory not only is this view wrong it can have tragic consequences without the law we would have no gospel it's hard really to understand the gospel without the law Sunday, August 6. The Law and the Promise Galatians 3.21 or part thereof in the ESV reads, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Sensing that his comments might lead his opponents to conclude he had a disparaging view of the law, or that his comments about the priority of God's promises were just a veiled put-down of Moses and the Torah, Paul asks the very important question they were thinking. Are you saying the law contradicts the promises of God? To this Paul responds with an emphatic no. Such a conclusion is impossible because God is not opposed to himself. God gave both the promise and the law. The law is not at odds with the promise. The two merely have different roles and functions in God's overall plan of salvation. Question. What mistaken concepts did Paul's opponents have about the role of the law? First of all, we look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life... Truly, righteousness would have been by the law. And Leviticus 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And Deuteronomy 6, verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. These people believed that the law was able to give them spiritual life. Their views probably arose out of a mistaken interpretation of Old Testament passages such as Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy 6.24, which we've just read, in which the law directs how life should be lived by those abiding in God's covenant. The law did regulate life within the covenant, but they concluded that the law was the source of a person's relationship with God. The Bible is clear, however, that the ability to make alive is a power exercised by God and his spirit alone, as we read in second kings five seven nehemiah nine six john five twenty one and romans four seventeen. Why don't we have a look at those right now? first of all, second kings five seven And it happened, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. And Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. You alone are the Lord, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. And John chapter 5 and verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And Romans 4.17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. The law cannot make anyone alive spiritually. This does not mean, however, that the law is opposed to God's promise. Seeking to prove the inability of the law to give life, Paul writes in Galatians 3.22, Scripture has confined all under sin. In Romans three to 19 Paul draws from a string of verses extracted from the Old Testament to show just how bad we are. The passages are not strung together in a haphazard manner. He begins with the heart of the sin problem, the selfish attitude that plagues human hearts, and then moves to verses that describes sin's pervasiveness and universality. Let's have a look at Romans 3, verses 9 through to 19. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practised deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips.' whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. His point Because of the extent of sin and limitations of the law, the promise of eternal life can come to us only through the faithfulness of Christ in our behalf. Here again is the great truth that propelled the Protestant Reformation. So, to finish today, though the law cannot save us, what great benefits does our adherence to it have for us? That is, what practical good have you experienced in your own life through obedience to God's law? Monday, August 7. KEPT UNDER LAW In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23, Paul writes that Before faith came, we were kept under the law. By we, Paul is referring to the Jewish believers in the Galatian churches. They are the ones acquainted with the law, and Paul has been speaking to them in particular since Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15. This can be seen in the contrast between the we in Galatians 3.23 and the you in Galatians three twenty-six. Galatians 3.23 reads, before faith came, but in the literal Greek it reads, before the faith came. Because Paul is contrasting the place of the law before and after Christ in Galatians 3.24, the faith is most likely a reference to Jesus himself and not a reference to Christian faith in general. Question. Paul says the Jews were kept under the law before the coming of Christ. What does he mean by under the law? Well, we'll look at some texts, first of all. We'll look at Galatians three twenty-two and 23. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And Romans six fourteen and 15, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. And 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. End the same chapter, end verse 21. And that reads Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And then Galatians chapter 5 and verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul uses the phrase under the law 12 times in his letters. Depending on its context, it can have a couple of different connotations. 1. Under the law as an alternative way of salvation, as we read just then in Galatians 4.21. The opponents in Galatia were trying to gain life-giving righteousness by obedience. However, as Paul already had made clear, this is impossible. Paul later will even point out that by desiring to be under the law, the Galatians really were rejecting Christ. He talks about that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2-4. to 4 and the second under the law in the sense of being under its condemnation as we have just read in romans six fourteen and fifteen because the law cannot atone for sin the violation of its demands ultimately results in condemnation this is the condition in which all human beings find themselves the law acts as a prison warden locking up all who have violated it and brought upon themselves the sentence of death. As we will see in tomorrow's lesson, the use of the word guard in Galatians 3.23 indicates that this is what Paul means by under the law in this passage. A related Greek word enomos, E-N-N-O-M-O-S, normally translated under the law, literally means within the law and refers to living within the requirements of the law through union with Christ. By the works of the law, that is, by trying to keep the law apart from Christ, it is impossible to be justified, because only those who through faith are righteous will live, as it says in Galatians 3.11. This truth doesn't nullify the law, it shows only that the law can't give us eternal life. It's way too late for that. Tuesday, August 8. The Law as our guard. Paul gives two basic conclusions about the law. One, the law does not nullify or abolish God's promise made to Abraham. Two, the law is not opposed to the promise. What role does the law actually play then? Paul writes that it was added because of transgressions in Galatians 3.19, and he expands on this idea using three different words or phrases in connection to the law – kept in Galatians 3:23 shut up again in the same verse and schoolmaster in Galatians 3:24 question read prayerfully and carefully Galatians 3:19 through to 24 what is Paul saying about the law Galatians 3 beginning at verse 19 what purpose then does the law serve it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to know the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator now a mediator does not mediate for one only but god is one is the law then against the promises of god certainly not For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith most modern translations interpret paul's comments about the law in galatians 3:19 in wholly negative terms but the original greek is not nearly so one-sided the greek word translated as kept in galatians 3:23 literally means to guard Although it can be used in a negative sense as to hold in subjection or to watch over in second corinthians eleven thirty two in the New Testament, it generally has a more positive sense of protecting or keeping in Philippians four seven and first Peter one five the same is true of the word translated as "shut up" in Galatians three twenty-three. It can be translated to "close" in Genesis twenty verse eighteen, to "shut" in Exodus fourteen three, Joshua six one, and Jeremiah thirteen nineteen, to "enclose" in Luke five six, or to "confine" in Romans eleven thirty-two. As these examples indicate, depending on its context. This word can have either positive or negative connotations. Question. What benefits did the law, moral and ceremonial, provide the children of Israel? First of all, Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. What advantage, then, has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And Romans 7, verses 12 through to 24. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to those judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He shall also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock, in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. If you shall say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left will hide themselves from you, are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And He will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. And Leviticus chapter 18, verses 20 through to 30. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her, and you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord." You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination, nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it, it is perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants.' You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled, lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, The persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. While Paul can speak about the law in negative terms in Romans 7 and Galatians 2.19, he also has some positive things to say about it. In Romans 7.12-14 to 14, he writes, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold, sold, under sin. And in Romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 4, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Romans 13 verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. The law was not a curse that God placed upon Israel. On the contrary, it was intended to be a blessing. Though its sacrificial system could not ultimately remove sin, it pointed to the promised Messiah who could, and its laws guiding human behaviour, protected Israel from many of the vices that plagued other ancient civilizations. In light of Paul's positive comments about the law elsewhere, it would be a mistake to understand his comments here in a completely negative way. So to finish today, think of something good that is misused. For example, a drug created to treat a disease could be used by some people to get high. What examples have you seen in your own life of this principle? How does our knowledge of the fact that something good can be misused help us understand what Paul is dealing with here? Day, August nine. The law as our schoolmaster. In Galatians chapter three, verses twenty three, Paul describes the law as a guarding and protecting force. To what does he liken it in verse twenty four, and what does that mean? Galatians three, twenty three and twenty four. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be relieved. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The word translated tutor in the New King James, or as schoolmaster in the King James Version, comes from the Greek word paedagogos, P-A-I-D-A-G-O-G-O-S. Some versions translate it as disciplinarian or tutor, or even guardian but no single word fully can encompass its meaning the paedagogos was a slave in roman society who was placed in a position of authority over his master's sons from the time they turned six or seven until they reached maturity in addition to providing for his charge's physical needs such as drawing their bath providing them with food and clothes and protecting them from any danger, the pedagogos also was responsible for making sure the master's sons went to school and did their homework. In addition, he was expected not only to teach and practice moral virtues, but also to ensure that the boys learned and practiced the virtues themselves. Though some pedagogues must certainly have been kind as well as loved by their wards, the dominant description of them in ancient literature is as strict disciplinarians. They ensured obedience not only through harsh threats and rebukes, but also by whipping and caning. Paul's description of the law as a pedagogue further clarifies his understanding of the role of the law – the law was added to point out sin and provide instruction. The very nature of this task means that the law also has a negative aspect, and that's because it rebukes and condemns us as sinners. Yet, God uses even this negative aspect for our benefit, because the condemnation that the law brings is what drives us to Christ. Thus, the law and the gospel are not contradictory, God designed them to work together for our salvation. From the book Selected Messages, book 1, page 234, I read, In this scripture, Galatians 3.24, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle is speaking, especially of the moral law. The law reveals sin to us and causes us to feel our need of Christ and to flee unto Him for pardon and peace, by exercising repentance toward god and faith toward our lord jesus christ end of quote and so to finish the day when was the last time you compared your actions and words and thoughts to the law do it now comparing them not just to the letter of the law but to the spirit as well we're going to read two verses here matthew 5:28 But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Romans 7 verse 6, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. How well do you fare? What does your answer tell you about Paul's point in this epistle? Thursday, August ten, the law and the believer. Our text for today is Galatians three, verse twenty-five. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Many have interpreted Paul's comments in this verse, Galatians three twenty-five, as a complete dismissal of the law. This makes little sense, however, in light of Paul's positive comments about the law elsewhere in the Bible. What does he mean, then? First, we are no longer under the law's condemnation. Romans 8.3 tells us that. As believers, we are in Christ and enjoying the privilege of being under grace, as we've read in Romans 6.14 and 15. This gives us the liberty of serving Christ wholeheartedly, without fear of being condemned for mistakes we might make in the process. This is what true freedom in the gospel is. This freedom is something radically different from no longer having to obey the law at all, which is what some people claim is freedom in Christ. But disobedience to the law instead is sin. And sin is anything but freedom, as we read in John 8.34. Question. Read Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through to 3. What does it mean to be no longer condemned by the law? How should this wonderful truth impact how we live? Romans 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. As a result of being forgiven through Christ, our relationship to the law is now different. We are now called to live a life that is pleasing to him, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Paul refers to this as being led by the Spirit in Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This does not mean that the moral law is no longer applicable. That was never the issue. How could it be when we have seen so clearly that the law is what defines sin? Instead, because the law is a transcript of God's character, by obeying the law we simply reflect His character. But more than that, we follow not just a set of rules – but the example of Jesus, who does for us what the law itself could never do. He writes the law in our hearts, as it says in Hebrews 8.10, and makes it possible for the righteous requirement of the law to be fulfilled in us in Romans eight four. That is, through our relationship with Jesus, we have the power to obey the law as never before. So to finish the day, Read Romans 8 verse 4 That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What is Paul saying here? How have you seen this promise manifested in your own life? At the same time, despite whatever positive changes you have experienced, why must salvation always be based on what Christ has done for us And nothing else. Friday, August 11th i am asked concerning the law in galatians ellen white writes in selected messages book one page two hundred thirty three what law is the schoolmaster to bring us to christ i answer both the ceremonial and the moral law of ten commandments Christ was the foundation of the whole Jewish economy. The death of Abel was in consequence of Cain's refusing to accept God's plan in the school of obedience to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, typified by the sacrificial offerings pointing to Christ. Cain refused the shedding of blood, which symbolized the blood of Christ, to be shed for the world. This whole ceremony was prepared by God and Christ before the foundation of the whole system. This is the beginning of its work as the schoolmaster to bring sinful human agents to a consideration of Christ the foundation of the whole Jewish economy. All who did service in connection with the sanctuary were being educated constantly in regard to the intervention of Christ in behalf of the human race. This service was designed to create in every heart a love for the law of God, which is the law of His kingdom. And the same book, page 235. The law of Ten Commandments is not to be looked upon as much from the prohibitory side as from the mercy side. Its prohibitions are the sure guarantee of happiness in obedience. As received in Christ, it works in us the purity of character that will bring joy to us through eternal ages. To the obedient, it is a wall of protection. And that brings us to our discussion questions this week. One, we often struggle with the question of how we can overcome sin in our lives. What promises do we have in the Bible about victory over sin? How can we better position ourselves to help make these promises real? At the same time, why must we be so careful to make sure that we place our full hope of salvation not on whatever victories we get, but on Christ's victory for us? And question two. We often hear Christians claim that the law has been done away with. Of course, these same Christians will speak out against sin, which means, of course, that they really don't mean the law is done away with. What, in fact, do they really mean by that claim? And here's a hint, in the context of what commandment does that claim usually arise? And to summarise this week's lesson, the law was given to point sinners to their need of Christ. As a custodian, it provides instruction about God and protection from evil. But like a disciplinarian, it also points out our sinfulness and brings condemnation. Christ frees us from the law's condemnation and writes his law upon our hearts. Inside Story Our mission story this week is the second part and the last part of No More Devil Stones. The meetings began a few days later. While the villagers built a shelter out of poles and thatch near Yerakea's home, the pastor conducted meetings outside another villager's home. When the pandal was finished, the larger meetings began. About 150 people from the surrounding village came. As the pastor began to speak, stones rained down on the thatched-roofed shelter. They fell through the roof and dropped among the crowd. The people dodged the stones, and one man stood and interrupted the pastor. "'The devils are troubling us again. See these stones that have fallen among us?' Pastor Rayo said, "'Don't be afraid.' Let's pray to the living God and let him handle our problem. Then he prayed in a loud voice, Father, you are the living God. This devil is disturbing our meetings, and these people want to know more about you. Show them that you are the real God and make the devil stop throwing stones. Then Pastor Reo shouted at the demons, In the name of Jesus, I command that the devils leave this village. At that instant, a stone hit the thatched roof, but it didn't fall through. It stayed where it landed. The people stood in awe for a moment. Then they sat down to listen to the sermon. Not once after the pastor's prayer did a stone fall through the roof, and no stones rained in Yerakaia's home either. From that day on, the family slept peacefully through the night. Yerakaia was convinced He would worship the true God, and he gave up his drinking. The couple invited their three grown children and their grandchildren to attend the meetings, and all of them now worship the God of heaven. Each believer who had given his or her life to Christ has pulled down his or her idols and thrown them into the nearby river. Jericho is so excited about the differences that Jesus has made in his home and his village that he invited the pastor to go with him to a nearby village where some of his relatives and friends lived, and there share the story of redemption. Jericho told the villagers how God stopped the devils from throwing rocks on his house and he urged the people to listen to the pastor tell about the living God. Thus, a second village in the area has been open to the gospel, and more than 150 have been baptised. Work in India continues to grow rapidly, and your generous 13th Sabbath offering will provide much-needed assistance. Thank you for giving. Yerakaya and Chinamai Balaga live in Konkarada village in Andhra Pradesh in India. Have a great Sabbath. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.